0: What I would like to talk about this evening is the language of silence. Perhaps it might seem strange at first to think of silence as a language. Usually we think of silence as the absence of something, the absence of words the absence of sound, the absence of contact or communication. But I think as we begin to calm down, we do also discover the revelations that silence really actually offers to us. That silence is not something missing. But silence is actually... A fullness, a fullness of connectedness, a fullness of sensitivity, a fullness of listening, that when we really do begin to connect with what silence is, we hear so well and we listen in ways that perhaps we've never listened in our lives before. We hear the unfolding rhythms of the world around us. We hear and listen well to our own unfolding rhythms. And there's ways in which those rhythms speak to us, which are very different than the ways of chatter and concepts and conclusions and definitions. There's ways in which we listen to those rhythms without demands, without busyness, without fear. And we discover, in very real ways, the language of silence. One of my favorite manifestations of the Buddha image is in Kuan Yin. And Kuan Yin translated means, one who hearkens to the sounds of the universe, one who listens to the sounds of the universe. This kind of listening is not passive, it is a remarkable sensitivity, which also offers to us, of course, a real depth of understanding, of compassion, of connection, of oneness. Meditation is really about discovering the language of silence. We are encouraged to let go of our words and our concepts. We're encouraged not to hold on to our definitions and our descriptions about the world, about ourselves, Encouraged to do this in the understanding that perhaps all of these images and all of these judgments and all of this knowing that we possess really maybe just clutters up the silence that is possible for us. The silence that really is the source of wisdom, of compassion and realization. We are encouraged not to linger anywhere not to dwell upon anything. So the silence of awareness can really be revealed to us. Every great teaching essentially informs us that the words that we so desperately hold on to can never really be true descriptions of anything at all. The words and descriptions that fill us are like reflections of the moon, on water. They perhaps point to something. But there is something very different in looking at a reflection than looking directly at the moon itself. And our words and our descriptions that fill our consciousness easily lead us to mistake the unreal for the real, to become so lost in our beliefs and our opinions and our prejudices. To become lost too, in limited ways of seeing the world, of seeing ourselves. In meditation, we are invited to immerse ourselves in silence, not only the silence of the spoken word, but the silence of not knowing, of not holding anything, holding on to anything. And it's suggested. That to do this, if we are to do this, that a universe of unending possibilities will open to us. That we will come to know a quality of freedom that is not dependent upon and not conditioned by anything. And that we will come to know really a profound peace and a profound joy. In Zen, this kind of silence, is called Beginner's Mind. And Suzuki Roshi said, Our original mind includes everything in itself. It is always rich and sufficient in itself. You should not lose your self-sufficient state of mind. This does not mean a closed mind, but actually an empty mind and a ready mind. If your mind is empty, it is always ready for anything. It is open to everything. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. This invitation to silence, of course, is not always easy for us to embrace. Words are indeed very important to us. Words, concepts, Represent to us safety. They offer to us an aura of familiarity, of the known. They appear to offer to us security and defenses. And somehow to think of being deprived of all of this is equated with fear. Because we see that our words and concepts are the stage upon which the eye dances we think there's an ultimate security in being able to say, I am, I have, and I know. And one would think that the verbal silence of a retreat would be greeted with open arms, with a welcome sigh of relief. After all, in this verbal silence of a retreat, we are relieved of the burden of asserting who we are. We're relieved of the burden of making a wonderful impression upon others and upon the world. Here we don't have to be a sparkling personality. We don't have to be a star. We don't have to win friends. And somehow silence relieves us of that need to earn admiration. And logically, it seems, well, that would be a very joyful thing to do. And yet our reality sometimes is very different. In the verbal silence of a retreat, what we are left with is really our kind of personal hall of mirrors. Like you have halls of mirrors in fairgrounds and carnivals, those mirrors that make you look all different, strange, distorted, tall, thin, square, all those things. And in this personal hall of mirrors of silence, it's not always flattering what we see. Sometimes we see how much actually we really rely on approval and affirmation to know who we are. Sometimes we're aware of how much we really long to assert our credentials in the world. You know, I may look like an ordinary yogi, but you know, in my real life, actually, I'm a real success, you know. (laughs) I can hardly wait to let you know this. We appreciate how many thoughts and how many judgments and how many images we form in this silence about other people. And it is, of course, very logical to assume that other people's minds are working in exactly the (laughs) same way. (laughs) But we have no way to test this. We have no way to know for sure. So we are left with our own hall of mirrors. And interesting things happen in that. We smile at someone. And they look the other way. (laughs) We feel devastated, rejected. What have I done to offend this person? Have I got spinach on my teeth? (laughs) Have I done something terrible in the meditation room? What do they think of me? We look in a friendly way at our neighbor across the table as we eat our lunch and they just seem interested in their rice. And we think, really, am I so unlovable? Is there something wrong with me? Worst things happen. Our roommates leave our room. Or the person who was sitting beside us in the meditation room has suddenly decided to sit somewhere else. (laughs) Shock and horror. You know, is it body odor? Is it bad vibes? Really, what's going on that's made the moon? We think it's our fault. Verbal silence deprives us of certainty. We can no longer tell who we are by how others see us. And we are left with seeing ourselves. And this is so unusual in our lives, to see just ourselves to know for ourselves what we think of ourselves, to know just for ourselves who we are without anybody to tell us it's right, wrong, good, bad, whatever. This is a remarkable discovery. But what we discover too is that in this hall of mirrors we see ourselves in many distorted ways. How easily left in this uncertainty we are so quick to jump to conclusions. I am like this. I am inadequate. I am hopeless. I am terrific. I'm not so great. I'm progressing. How quickly we fill in that space of uncertainty and silence with our own words to somehow offer us again some form of safety and some form of familiarity. We are left in silence with our inner world. And this is the landscape upon which and in which we find this sense of I seeking for certainty and reassurance. And as we listen and explore inwardly, sometimes we are simply stunned and amazed by the degree of noise that we encounter. Where does it come from? The flower really hasn't asked for our judgment. The tree doesn't really seem to require our comments upon it. We don't seem to have something to say about everything. Other people's socks, their wardrobe, their sitting posture, their walking style, you know, the decorations in IMS, the teachers, you know, there's so much to talk about inwardly, it seems. Sometimes we disbelieve how many thoughts we can actually have. If you were to count your thoughts in a day, it seems almost infinite. And it doesn't stop when you go to sleep. (laughs) It seems a miracle, almost, that the mind can produce so much noise. And, of course, the unfortunate part of it is that we really don't seem to invite or choose the great bulk of it. Instead, somehow, we feel fated to be a captive audience of a mind which is in love with its own labels. (laughs) How much silence do we experience when we listen inwardly? Sadly, it seems, at times, not too much. And it consumes so much energy, have you noticed? I mean, meditation actually doesn't make you tired. Meditation fills you with energy, vitality. Don't believe me, huh? (laughs) Meditation does not make you tired. What makes us tired is struggle, resistance, dwelling. This is truly exhausting. I mean, when you think about it, really, we're not running marathons here, are we? You know, we spend a lot of time just hanging around, sitting around, hours. I mean, you probably never in your life spend so many hours just sitting around as we do on a retreat. And then we have a couple little walks in between, you know, nothing really too taxing. And yet, at the end of the day, we feel so exhausted, you know, as if we climbed a mountain. You know, being running around the loop 20 times, we feel so tired and we wonder what's going on. We've heard, of course. That meditation brings peace and serenity, energy and vitality, and when we hear that we're convinced that it's somebody else's meditation, that it's being spoken of, but not ours. Now really, sometimes it is just useful to look at really what is all this noise about? What is all this busyness and all this thinking really about? Does it make any difference to anything? Really, does it make any difference at all? And I think it becomes clear that much of this noise that we seem to live with is the dance of I and the dance of fear. The busyness of I that is looking for certainty, looking for a refuge, looking for a sanctuary. And the places that it looks for that certainty is being able to say, I am, I have, ideally we would like to build fortresses after the building blocks of these three because certainty does represent safety to us security and we do tend to equate security with happiness now we have in our lives of course resigned ourselves to the fact that the outer world is simply unable to offer us this certainty no matter how much we know, no matter how much we have, no matter how many credentials we have accumulated, we know actually there is always vulnerability. We can always lose what we re- rest so deeply upon. And also, we are aware that, you know, even after we get over the initial excitement of gaining or succeeding or you know, feeling pride in our ability to arrange our world according to our desires. How easily we sink back into a kind of boredom or restlessness or insecurity. You now we have all this insight about our outer lives. You know, we're aware of impermanence. Everybody knows impermanence. We're aware that we can't rely upon anything for safety, that nothing lasts. But this insight, it seems, it doesn't mean that we relinquish entirely the desire to control, to manipulate, and consume the world. We do still occasionally make brief kind of uh, excursions out into the world to rely upon something heavily. But even as we do so, we're aware somewhat of its futility. Yet, somehow, the lessons don't always sink home so deeply. It is apparent from our life experience, our own understanding, our inability to control. And yet, it is a difficult habit to give up. The search for certainty is a difficult habit to give up. Instead, that search often really does continue inwardly. We look for the trinity of having becoming someone, knowing, it turns inwardly. And this in itself is what creates the busy mind, the search for all of that. The busyness of moving towards things and moving away from things, the busyness of constructing identities, of resistance, the busyness of becoming. We come to this silence. Here, the silence of this path, the silence of this environment. And we are offered an invitation to let go, to explore emptiness, to know what it means to be still, to know what it means to listen. And we are invited to trust that the wisdom that we need to understand freedom, the end of fear will emerge out of this silence and this listening. It is such a simple and it is such a wonderful invitation, but to the eye it is a recipe for disaster. Because this invitation and this journey doesn't seem to offer us the certainty, the credentials, or the guarantees that we long for. So it is no wonder that we struggle even noise at times seems desirable. Fantasy, imagining, remembering, producing. Even that noise at times seems desirable because at least we know in that noise, well, I'm doing something. I have something to be engaged in. I have something to do. Now, what is it that frightens us about silence? What is it actually that Frightens us about this inner journey, and we look when we look at it deeply. Much of it actually seems to be frightening. This journey is a journey of the spirit. It is a journey to profound and mystical understanding and realization. And there is no way that that can be measured. There is no way that we can make demands of insight to be visible to us. And I, sense of I, longs for visibility. It longs for tangibility. It longs for more solidity that it can possess, that it can relate to, that it can define itself by. This journey offers us silence. And we crave, find ourselves craving words and descriptions and definitions, because these are the marks by which we make our experience familiar. This journey is about depth. It is about movement, about wisdom. And there's no yardstick to measure it by. And I certainly longs for sign, purse, for measurements, and for yardsticks. Because without them, how do we even know how we're doing? How do we even know if we're progressing or not? Even the path, even the path itself, is only a vehicle. It is a raft. It is a tool to be let go of at some point, a form not to be identified with. And yet we see again and again in ourselves the desire to have institutions at times, the desires to have something more solid, something that can be identified with. And I spoke about the other night about institutions, how there is something within us that is also moved towards them to create that kind of reliability, predictability. The story I'd like to read you is not about apples tonight. When the Guru sat down to worship each evening, the ashram cat would get in the way and distract the worshippers. So he asked that the cat be tied up during the evening worship. After the guru died, the cat continued to be tied during evening worship. And when the cat expired, another cat was brought to the ashram so that it could be duly tied during evening worship. (laughs) And centuries later, learned doctrines were written by the guru's scholarly disciples on the religious significance of tying up a cat while worship is performed. (laughs) We actually have many ways of tying up our own cats. When we hold on to the last sitting, we're tying up our cat. When we hold on to images we've constructed about ourselves, we are doing exactly the same. When we hold on to signposts or experiences and demand of them continuity, predictability, we are tying up our cat. When we create goals, no matter how altruistic they are, we are also tying up our cat. Trying to create certainty and order. Even, it seems, you know, sometimes we see our our doing of this and we think, well, you know, I've got to get rid of this I that is always longing for this certainty. But even when we engage in a great deal of doing to get rid of this I which seems such a problem, we're creating a reality out of it, offering its substantiality and solidity to something which is not substantial. This is really what identification and grasping does. It creates static and frozen centers out of fluid and changing processes. And those static centers become our reality. At times we want to believe in them desperately. There's a kind of collusion in delusion love this phrase, (laughs) that happens inwardly, when we want to make the unreal real, because it offers us security or because we're afraid of losing it, because we're afraid we will be nothing without it. It is like the story of the emperor who had no clothes. You know the story about this emperor who was so vain and you know, invested everything in how he looked, at his appearance. You know, his whole life revolved around looking fine and looking like an emperor should. And you know, one time these two tricksters kind of clued into this delusion. His his delusion about looking a, way, a certain way made him into something special. And so they decided they could profit by this. And so they said to the emperor, you know, we are the finest tailors in the world. And we can make you a suit of clothes out of the finest cloth. This cloth is so fine and so special that only people who are really wise can see it. No one else can see it. Only special people can see it. And so every day they would but they said, and when we make you this suit of clothes, of course we'd like to be paid rather handsomely. And the person said, of course, of course, you do know, this even better, you know, I'll make such a wonderful impression on the world, go to work. And so the tailors, you know, set up this workshop in the basement with scissors and needles and all these things. And every day they sat there doing this, you know, with nothing, with nothing, just with air. And they would call the emperor down to view how the suit of clothes was progressing. They said, remember, only the special can see it, only the wise. So he would come down, he would look, and he'd say, it's really coming along well, isn't it? It's looking good. And then he would call his ministers the next day and the people in his government, and he would tell them, only the special, only the wise can see how wonderful this is. And they'd come and they'd nod in agreement, it's looking terrific. So the day, of course, came for the fitting, and the emperor, you know, dressed up in this air, (laughs) and decided, he he looked in the mirror, and the tailor said, you know, you look fantastic. I've never seen anyone look so fine, look so wonderful. And the emperor said, and looked in the mirror, and said, indeed I do. And he said, in fact, so special, I guess I ought to have a parade, and let all the people see it this wonderful suit of clothes. So this parade was announced and all the people gathered and he began to strut down the street stark naked you know thinking you know with this wonderful look of pride on his face and everybody of course had heard that only the wise and the special could see these clothes and they all murmured and nodded sagely except for one little boy who said look the Emperor's got no clothes. And sometimes for us, it's okay to say, you know, we've got no clothes. That we don't actually have to rely on all of this. We don't actually have to spend so much time creating these constructions, creating these identities, so that we can be someone, surely anything that can be constructed, anything that can be grasped hold of, anything that can be defined and described, surely this cannot be who we are. It is clear from our experience that grasping, that identification, is painful. No matter how gross, no matter how subtle that grasping is, its inevitable offspring is pain. We know this. We don't actually need an expert to tell us this. Our whole life experience tells us that grasping needs to pain, the fear of loss, the separation, the need to defend, the fear of disapproval, all of those things. The difficulty is, of course, is that somehow I don't actually believe those lessons somehow I, in a very distorted way, begins to perceive pain as pleasure. Even though all of us in our lives have many times experienced loss, separation, failure, unpredictability, uncertainty, disillusionment, how deeply do we learn those lessons? Instead, sometimes what we learn is that To recover from those experiences, what we need to do is to grasp hold of something else. This is the lesson that we seem to learn. To recover from the pain, what we actually need to do is to grasp hold of something else. Like a moth to a candle flame. That although it gets burned, although it is painful, somehow it keeps coming back. In that process, what is happening, I, I is actually equating pleasure with certainty and security. Uncertainty and security is equated then with grasping and identification. It seems that I finds it very difficult to learn that lesson to learn that certainty and security and pleasure that is dependent upon grasping and identification, that this is not pleasure, but that this is pain. Because to believe this in many ways leaves I with nothing to do. What would I do if I had nothing to grasp hold of? Who would I be? How would I direct my life? And yet we see, when there is no quest for knowing, when there is no quest for having, when there is no quest for becoming, it is difficult to find I. You cannot find I alone. It is as I am. I have, I want, I think, I need, I don't like. Try to find I alone. This which seems so substantial when accompanied by a definition cannot be found alone, and it cannot be found in the absence of grasping. Now we do learn from our life experience. We do find, as our lives deepen, as our understanding deepens, that we are not so easily deceived by desires and resistances, and so there's less pain. We find that we're not so easily swept away by craving and control and so there's more spaciousness. We find that we don't rely so heavily upon things as wisdom and understanding deepens in our lives that we find a different kind of happiness and a different kind of fulfillment inwardly. And we do develop equanimity and compassion so that we're not quite so ensnared by our judgments, and our prejudices, and our images. And in some ways, all of this can be measured. We can see changes in ourselves. We can see changes in our lives. We can see a certain transformation happening. But there is another step to take, which doesn't always have to do with time. And it doesn't always have to do with conditions. And it doesn't have to do with becoming a better meditator or, you know, having more experience or more retreats. It has to do more with an immediacy of understanding, with a directness of seeing, with a depth of wisdom that can only have to do with now and not with time, not with future. To truly understand silence, to be at home in, to find easy ease in silence, is also to understand clearly and no longer be deceived by the language of I. And the language of I has a very basic, very elementary vocabulary, although it produces endless words which are camouflage. It is the language of the craving for pleasure and the aversion to pain, This is what deceives us. Pleasure supports I, pain threatens I. These two actualities fuel the dance of I, create the noise, the busyness, the separation. I learns to misname pleasure and calls it happiness, but pleasure is not happiness. This basic mistake, and this basic misnaming, is the source of so much pain in our lives. I retreats from pain through aversion, through suppression, through distraction, through denial. That movement towards, the movement of craving, the movement of aversion, is the movement that consumes so much energy. Sometimes we seek for the solution to pain in pleasure. And we can see this in our experience. When you, have fant- when you have boredom, how the mind easily switches into fantasy. When we have an unpleasant mental state, how easily we just kind of drop into strategies to fix it, to get rid of it. When we have a sense of a lack of control, how easily and quickly our minds get so busy in filling up space. We can see our reactions to the unpleasant, to the difficult. But pleasure is just pleasure, it is not happiness. And there is no lasting happiness that will be found in the realm of I am, and I have, and I know. And this is the only territory that the eye can travel. The Buddha once said that this path is the path to happiness, and that the highest happiness is peace. Uh, The peace and the happiness that the Buddha spoke of has nothing to do with the presence or the absence of the pleasant or the unpleasant. It is the peace of non-clinging. It is the happiness of not grasping. Only when there is a cessation of clinging do we also cease to be conditioned by what we cling to. Only in the cessation of grasping letting go of grasping. Do we cease to be endlessly molded by the objects, the thoughts, the mental states that arise? Only in the cessation of grasping is at the end of conditioning. The deepest lesson we learn and the greatest art that we learn in this practice is cultivating the art of non-dwelling, to linger upon nothing, to dwell nowhere, to seek no certainty, to strip ourselves of the need for knowing and having and becoming, we discover the highest happiness and the highest peace. Something I just wanted to read to you. The question is asked, what is non-dwelling? Dwelling upon nothing means that the mind doesn't remain with good or evil, being or non-being, inside or outside, emptiness or non-emptiness, concentration or distraction. This dwelling upon nothing is the state to abide. Those who attain it are said to have non-dwelling minds. In other words, they have Buddha minds. Non-dwelling is not a point that we arrive at, at some future time in the path, when we're somehow more evolved, or more experienced, or deeper. Non-dwelling is not a destination. There's nothing static about it. It is not a center. It is never frozen. It is the path it is the path, it is the journey. every thought, every sound, every sight, every image accommodated and embraced within that non-dwelling. And that non-dwelling is not separate from anything. It doesn't make any distinctions. it has no prejudice. It minds not whether there is thought or whether there is not thought. It Minds not whether there are images or no images. it makes no distinctions and has no prejudice. It is not separate from movement. It is not dependent upon absence. And this non-dwelling is the language of silence. It is listening. It is that deep quality of presence, always possible for us, always available to us, always accessible to us, It has no preconditions. We do not have to be anyone special to cultivate the art of non-dwelling. We do not have to have a history of meditation or credentials in any way. Silence asks that of none of us. Non-dwelling asks that of none of us. It is an open hand, an open invitation And an open gate, it is where we discover who we are. May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings live with compassion. May all beings abide in silence. We could have just two minutes quietly together.